Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. Good evening, Citizens Youth. It's great to be with you guys. My name is Will. For those of you who don't know me, thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm a leader. I lead a group of sixth grade guys with another great guy, Mitch. And I'm going to be a preaching intern this summer, 2023. So you're going to be seeing a lot more of my face around here. And the title for my sermon tonight is, You Can't Do That. You Can't Do That, right? I think a lot of us have probably heard this. Um, In our culture, this is something that we hear. Maybe we've heard this from friends. I think this is most prevalent with siblings and parents, right? We've all probably had the finger pointed at us or a lot of times pointed the finger at somebody else to say, you can't do that. But one time in particular, my senior year of high school, this was 2022. I know it's a long time ago. I'm starting to look old. I still feel young. But I was playing basketball for a team out in Hazel Dell for my senior year, Kingsway Christian. And one one practice in particular sticks in my memory. We were coming off a loss on our season. And so as you can imagine, morale on the team wasn't too high. And most days at practice, we would have both coaches in the building. But this day, our head coach was out in the office. And so our assistant coach was running practice, Coach Ty. And in, in normal coach tie fashion, he decides to have us compete against each other when we're all in bad moods coming off a loss. And so we, we enter into this drill where the essence, follow with me, is that it's five on five, shirts and skins, team versus team, and we all circle like this, jog in the key, okay? So we're all circling around the key, and what happens is Ty's going to pass the ball, and if your squad gets it, you want to run down and get a bucket. If your squad doesn't get the ball, you want to get down and match up. If you got the ball one time, it flips, next team's ball. Are we following? All right. If we're not following, that's okay. But on the other team was one of my buddies named Jamo. And me and Jamo would tend to um, get into it a lot at practice, a lot of the time at practice. We were both competitors, competitive people. And this time in particular, Jamo was on the other team. And so coach throws the ball into their team. They go down and come back, and coach had some explaining to do. And we start circling up again, and coach asks, whose ball is it? And now keep in mind, we're not just having fun in this drill. Okay, losing squad has to do sprints. No one likes to run in practice, so we were getting into it. It was competitive. And J-Mo, nicely in J-Mo fashion, speaks up and says, us, it's our ball. And I go, no. It's our ball. You guys had ball last. And for a brief period, me and Jameson uh, returned expletives to each other. I wouldn't uh, recommend doing that in a youth group sermon. But Coach Ty blows his whistle in the middle of our arguing, and he says, all right, you guys got 10 seconds to figure out whose ball it is. And I stubbornly speak up, and I say, Jamo, it's our ball. You guys had ball last. And he goes, whatever, fine, like this. And Coach Ty stops, crosses his arms, and takes a good look and, and blows his whistle again and says, all right, everybody on the line. And we ran sprints until 
well, we didn't want to run sprints anymore. But I don't just tell that story to just give you a funny story, but to communicate an idea to you this evening. When we feel as though something is unfair or we think it's wrong, it's human nature to see, to say, you can't do that. And in our passage today, Hebrews 8, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Hebrews 8. We're going to see something that the original recipients and readers of this letter would have said, you can't do that to. Hebrews, as we discussed in, in, in all the weeks prior, is making a case that Jesus is better Right? That's the theme of the book. He's better than angels, chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He offers a greater rest than the law could provide. That's 3 and 4. He's better than Joshua, chapter 4. And as we continue tonight, we're going to look in the text and find that Jesus brings in a better priesthood and offers a better covenant. Additionally, what Jesus does is something that you or I could never do and would never have been able to do without him. We can't do that. And if you're an unbeliever here tonight, and you're saying, man, I keep laboring, but there's this need for salvation, for relationship and truth. I feel like I just have this hole in my heart, and I'm not sure why. Well, I want to tell you that there's good news for you tonight. And so let's dive into the text. This is Hebrews 8. Would you follow along with me tonight? Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The first thing that we see in this text is this idea of the great high priest. And this is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ willingly becomes our advocate 
as the high priest in the true tabernacle. You know, most of us may know, but for those who don't, under the context of Old Covenant law, there were priests that would offer sacrifices for sins. You see, sin stands in between us and a holy God, and we are all guilty of it. Thus, we need something to quench a holy God's wrath against the perils of sin. Sin cannot go unpunished, and this is why the priesthood was orchestrated for a little while to atone for sins, but even more so to point forward of the one who would come, who would fulfill these things they spoke of. This would indefinitely atone for the sin of humanity, for those who had put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for a while, the priests under the Old Covenant would sacrifice for the sins of both themselves and the people of God. There would be a ceremonial cleansing that these priests would, would partake in, cleansing themselves of the sins for them before they stepped into the Holy of Holies in the man-made tabernacle of the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews opens in verse 1 saying, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, the summary of all that has been said so far, the point is that we have such a perfect high priest who is currently in heaven right now. This is wonderful for us as Christians. You see, no longer do we subscribe to a man-made imperfect priesthood, but we have a priest who is far superior. And what's the proof of his superiority? Well, I want to point you back to verse 1. It says this, he's seated at the right hand. This would have been blasphemous to those listening to this letter who would subscribe to Judaism. How can he sit? No priest would ever sit. To sit on the mercy seat of God would have never been done by a priest, and a priest who would have even imagined doing this in the tabernacle of the Lord would be drug out dead by his foot. It would have been blasphemy. You can't do that. But Christ does. And why can Christ do this? Well, as verse 3 states, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So why can he sit? Well, well, Christ, in his death on the cross, crushes sin and the curse of death. He makes a way for sinners, broken humanity, to come to God. No longer do we need a priest to enter into these holy places to atone for sin and reconcile us to God over and over and over again. A way has been made through our great high priest, Jesus. This is good news. Look at what verse 6 and 7 say. But as it is, meaning currently, right now, Christ has obtained, meaning fully orchestrated, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. 
since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent. He is our mediator in this new promise. And here, I'm going to use another basketball reference. It's the last one, I promise. And it doesn't necessarily need to be for basketball. But a lot of time in sports... It's not always a good idea to go and complain to a referee. Just like I could relate this, sometimes it's not always a great idea to go and complain to your parents. Uh, one of my, my favorite, it's a love-hate relationship, players in the NBA, Draymond Green. He always gets in trouble because he goes and yells and shares how he feels with the refs. It's not a good idea in basketball. It's not something you should do. If someone's grabbing your jersey, if they're playing dirty or doing something that the refs should know about, it's not a good idea really to go to the ref. Any good coach will tell you, we'll talk to the refs, you guys play. And and no matter how upset I personally was with referees, I knew that there were some I couldn't go to. And that's where I had both my high school and my club team coaches, and they would be the ones that would go and mediate for me and my fellow teammates. And in small plays, in big plays, it doesn't matter. When you're upset, the coach has to mediate. They make a way for you to be in communication with someone you wouldn't otherwise be able to be. But my point here today isn't merely that Jesus allows you to communicate with God, but he mediates being a sacrifice for your sin that you could be brought into relationship with God. One scholar and Bible teacher, John MacArthur, says this, one of the key theological themes in Hebrews is that all believers now have direct access to God under the new covenant and therefore may approach the throne of God boldly. One's hope is in the very presence of God into which he follows the Savior. The primary teaching symbolized by the tabernacle service was that believers under the covenant of law did not have direct access to the presence of God, but were shut out of the Holy of Holies. Believers in Jesus Christ, as God's perfect sacrifice for sin, have the perfect high priest through whose ministry everything is new and better than under the covenant of law. Students, you have direct access to the God of creation. Christ mediates on your behalf and allows us a way to God. Even in our sin and our denial of God, Christ makes a way for us that clearly we could never have made on our own. Do you see the futility of the old priesthood in here? Not only associated with the language our passage gives, that it's a shadow. This whole priesthood thing wasn't working for the Jews, which also reflects a reality of humanity. I mean, does anybody remember this working for the people in the Old Testament? No. They, they keep getting more and more debased, more and more intertwined with idols. And even in an infinite sense, no amount of animal sacrifice could have ever fully atoned for the sins of God's people. But Christ makes a way. 
and in something we could never have done in our imperfection, Christ succeeds. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What does Christ offer? Christ offers himself on the cross as atonement for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You have direct access to God. Approach the throne of God boldly in prayer and repentance. Christ, as the great high final priest, offers the gifts of our praise and worship, And what Romans 12 says is that's not just on Sundays or Wednesdays when we sing. That's our lives, that Christ is offering the gifts and everything we do, we worship God. God. And the final sacrifice of himself. And to the skeptic going, I know I'm broken, that something's off, but I don't know what or where to go. What I would say to you tonight is believe in this very real and living high priest that I speak of. You know, this whole Christianity thing, this isn't a fairy tale or a book of made-up stories. This isn't something that we've propagated for for 2,000 years. We speak of a very real and historical Jesus that's attested by countless eyewitness and, and textual documents. And you know, atheist scholars will even agree that, yes, Jesus was a person who walked on this earth. But he wasn't just a good person or a good teacher. He's the fully divine and fully human, only begotten Son of God. And when he declares on the cross, it is finished. He conquers the divide of sin and death that we could never scale. Sin's curse in bringing death is dealt with on the cross once and for all. And, and we might ask, well, what is Jesus up there doing right now? Right? Is he up there playing golf? I don't think so. What our text says is that he's continuing to mediate. 1 John chapter 2 says that Christ is our advocate with the Father. He's our propitiation, our sacrifice to God. So what does this ministry obtain that Christ ushers in in verse 6 that we're brought into? Well, that's point number two. That's the great new covenant. And again, the writer of Hebrews is going to show us a new way that is superior. And in this area, it's going to be a better covenant. You see, God has made covenants with his people all throughout time. And for those of us asking, we're going, well, what the heck is a covenant? Uh, To put it in the most simplest term with what I have time to explain to you tonight, a covenant is a promise, a promise that God makes. And and here's the thing, God is really good at keeping his promises, but we can't ever fulfill our end of the covenant. It's in our text that we see the futility of the old covenant. Look at verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers 
on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And we take a peek and look at that word in verse 8. Fault. Faulty. Why or how can the old covenant be faulty, right? We're not speaking of a promise like those people maybe in middle school or elementary school who would trade you a Pokemon card, right? And they're like, oh yeah, dude, I promise. This is cool. And then you get it home and peel it off and it's a fake, Right? We're not talking about the promise from one of those Instagram giveaway scammers that you just gave five bucks of your uh, wallet to and you're never going to see again, even if you win that giveaway. Let's just hit pause for a second, right? If God has made a covenant, then why or how can it be faulty? We'll read again in the middle of verse 9. It says this, For they did not continue in my covenant, And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. We broke the covenant. The old covenant is faulty because as fallen human beings, we can never fulfill the law. You see, Paul writes of the law in the New New Testament, and he says that it exuberates sin. It makes it grow. Paul says the law makes sin known to us. The old covenant is only a temporary interim promise before the fulfillment of these things could come in Jesus. And and what does he say next in Hebrews? Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I want to highlight this for a second, declares the Lord. This is a prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah, but notice what he says here declares the Lord. This is God speaking, telling the Jews ahead of time that he will establish a new covenant. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Let's continue. What does verse 10 continue to say? I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What the author is doing here, he's telling his audience, look, it's right here. It's in your law, right? How many of us have fallen to these I told you so moments, right? Maybe some of us have even lost money on being stubborn for a decision when we know we might even slightly know that we're wrong, right? But we continue to be stubborn and hard of heart. The the inevitable I told you so is on its way from whoever it might be. And and so the reader is hearing this prophecy from the book of Hebrews when they're reading this or hearing this, and they're going, oh, it's an aha moment, right? It's right here in our law that God says he will establish a better covenant, not like the ones with our fathers. Students, We've been told through prophecy that concerning the old covenant of law, 
We have been brought into something better through Christ. Look at verse 13 with me. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Right? What does our text say? It's obsolete. It's bankrupt. It will never lead to righteousness. Students, you can't mix grace and works because that's not what the Bible teaches. But rather, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not a result of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2.8. You know, people have been doing this forever within the context of the Christian faith. You know, they'll say, you're, you're saved by grace... But you got to be baptized, too, to really confirm it, right? They'll say, you're saved by grace, but you have to work your way up this totem pole if you really want to get there. You're saved by grace, but you have to take communion. You have to take the Lord's Supper. You're saved by grace, but you got to follow the Mosaic Law down to a T, And we would recognize all these things and say, well, this is actually really bad news for the thief on the cross. Uh, I guess Jesus must have been joking when he said he would be in paradise. But my point in saying this is that some of you are trying to do this. I know I do all the time. Most of us Christians, we're trying to gain salvation and ongoing salvation. That's sanctification. We're trying to do this on our own. We try so hard to be perfect like Christ to be good, to be virtuous. You cannot and you will never be good enough or Christ-like enough in this approach because the point is not to have faith like Christ, but to have faith in this Christ whom we speak of. We preach till we're blue in the face on the failures of the Jewish people in never being good enough to obtain salvation, and then we turn around and try to do the exact same thing, trying to do better or be good in our own strength. It doesn't work. Have faith in this high priest, Jesus Christ, who himself atoned for sins, who bore them on the cross and three days later rose again. And to those of you who don't yet believe, I just want to say this tonight, you don't have to initially be obedient or good enough to come to Christ. Because what he does is he bore your sin on the cross and he mediates and advocates for you and he declares you righteous before the throne of God if you would believe and repent and turn the other way. Christ offers a superior promise through his blood. And and what are the implications for those believing in this great high priest Jesus who ushers us into the new covenant. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This old covenant of law and obedience could never have been fulfilled by humanity. We needed a holy Savior, or in other words, a Messiah One who could come and set us free from the bondage of the law by being the fulfillment of whom these things spoke of. And the point in all this is that we have such a high priest right now. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's verse 1 and 2. Who will, as verse 12 says, remember your sins no more. How? You, you might be asking. This seems like, this seems like great news, but how, how? How can I come into relationship with this one? What do I need to do? Acts 16.31 And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We're saved by the grace alone of this high priest who offers to the Father the sacrifice of his own blood until he comes again. Here's the main idea this evening. Christ offers a superior promise through his own blood. Christ offers a superior promise through his own blood. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we, we thank you for the truth of this text. Jesus, that in something that we could have never done and continued to fail to do, that Christ has ushered us in to this new covenant if we would just believe and repent. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this text and pray that this would continue to guide not only our week but our lives as we reflect on what it had to say about Christ. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.